Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Susanna Skyer Gupta. Thanks, Ray. This is the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Welcome to episode two for season 12. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, the 16th of November, 2021, for release on the 1st of December. This episode is sponsored by Late Audio Inserts. I'm your host, Drew Freeman, with my co-host, Susanna Skyer Gupta. Thanks, Drew. This episode, we dive into some really cool things and talk with season nine co-host, Jen Bailey. Jen is a full-time professor of computer science, teaching certificates in mobile apps and C-sharp programming at Community College, a part-time author editor for raywenderlich.com, and the regional mentor for Google developer group, Mountain Region. And I don't get to say this very often, but Jen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Drew. It's great to be back. (laughs) And it's great to meet you, Susanna. Yes, I'm really excited about this. We we uh, we just keep the ball rolling every season, and it's it's great that you were able to make time to come back and and tell us what's been going on and all these wonderful things about about life. But obviously, uh, a good question to start on is how are things with lockdown for you? Are you still are you slowly making your way back into the world? I am. Our community college opened up its doors. Um, however, I have improved my format forever. So now I'm teaching hybrid classes, which means that my lectures are recorded and then I'm able to also teach in person. So are you, are your recorded lectures, uh, video lectures like this? Sort of like this, although I record my screen instead of myself. (laughs) (laughs) And then is it like, is it a flipped classroom? Do you go in and then the students are expected to have watched what you recorded and then together you work and you're available to answer questions or like what's what happens in person and what happens on the recording? That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head with flipped classroom. So they have their assignments and lectures online. And then once a week they can come into the classroom or they can meet via Zoom. And I also have a Zoom-only session for supplement. Now, we were talking before the show that um, when you and I did the show, Zoom was not really as quite inundated as it is now. So you got to cut your Zoom teeth doing, doing the show. Yes, my experience on the podcast before really helped me to move into the transition of teaching online. And it gave me an edge so I didn't have to learn Zoom. Learn Zoom from the ground up. <laughs> so do you find yourself suffering any, uh, I guess they call it now Zoom fatigue, that you just, too much is Zoom? I did at first because I signed up for all these great online conferences and events. And I was in four or five Zoom meetings at once sometimes. Oh, and wow. I got really tired of my chair. And so I bought a standing desk. And that is helpful. Now, I've done that when playing poker, where I'll play two or three <laughs> tables at once, but I haven't been in two or three Zoom sessions at once. That's, that, that just would be like complete overload for me. It was. <laughs> I don't recommend it because then you miss all three of them. So, so you're back. I, I take it still at Ames? Yes, I currently teach full-time at Ames Community College. So what are you currently teaching this semester? 
This semester, I'm teaching Java programming, uh, C++ programming. Those are both computer science one. And then I'm teaching intro to programming with Python. Yay. And um, introduction to C Sharp. Yes, you're very <laughs> pro Python now. Yes, I'm very pro Python now because I, I've been teaching my son Python and, and I've learned all about things like PyCharm and, uh, and PyPlot and uh, PyGame and, and, and something else that starts with Py, but I've forgotten what it is. But we made a Space Invaders game with uh, with, with Python, and, and I did not think that would be possible. Oh, that's cool. That is so cool. I love Pygame. That is a really fun add-on. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I'm trying to transition him off of Scratch and into more normal development. So I don't know whether or not Java or C++ or, or C Sharp is my next step, but I, I, I think it's going to be C Sharp because I want to get him pushed toward things like Unity. C Sharp is great. I think you could choose any one of those. I think it's a, a really broad question. What, so what is normal programming? What does that mean now? You know? <laughs> Maybe he means more structured. <laughs> yeah. Why would a no why would a no code environment not be normal programming? I mean, it's not normal for what we're used to, but what will be normal for when he enters the workplace if in fact that's what he wants to do with programming? You know, that's which true. I mean, be. I may just be forcing programming on him because well I chip off the old block. Uh, but for, the whole thing about uh, Scratch is that it's obviously a self-contained environment that has its limitations. Right. You can't go from Scratch to Google Play or the App Store, yeah? No, you, you can't. You, you really don't have that kind of that kind of external access to where you can start pulling in other tools. Um, I, I'm trying to talk to him now because his main frame of reference is Minecraft. And I'm trying to talk to him about getting resources from outside the world into Minecraft, like having it check the weather and then change the weather inside the game. Can you do that in Minecraft? I believe that there is some form of hook uh, in, and everything is basically run through command line as well. So there's a command line for the weather. And as long as there's some kind of hook and pr probably we have listeners who are going to be like, no, you can't do that. Or yeah, sure you can. And we'll find out. Yeah. My, my Minecraft is less developed than my Android, which is to say both are. <laughs> Mine too. Work. Yes, Jen, <laughs> you are our, our Android goddess tonight. Well, thank you. Possibly all the time. Yes. And, and we will be looking to you for, for many things about Android and and the like. I, I think uh, a good question is, what now you've, you've worked in both Android and iOS. Yes. So where do you find the benefits of Android programming are? Wow. I would say the community. And I like how... Google is always adding new things, so you get to be on the cutting edge, which means you also get to test the betas a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and iOS is a very solid platform, so I don't have anything bad to say about it. Um, Android has always intrigued me, probably because of the challenge and the newness and the novelty. Um, mm. And lately, the tools keep 
working better and better. So they just keep adding stuff to make it better and easier to learn. You talked about the community. Can you tell me some of the some of the, the community offerings that Google has for developers? Yes. Yeah, so one of their main offerings would be Google developer groups. So that's a main offering. I would highly recommend that any Android developer or person who's interested in Google technology or learning Google technology um, or learning Android, I would um, invite them to sign up for Google developer group. And Google developer group is an inclusive group of developers that use Google technology. Uh, they have a platform now, so there will be links to the platform where people can sign up. I would encourage people to get involved with a group in their area. What's really neat about the platform that they've set up is we can now see meetups all over the world. So you can see everybody's GDG meetup and you can search through for topics um, that matter to you. Mm -hmm. And there's also women tech makers. So for lady developers. We'll say more about that. Yes. So Women Tech Makers is a uh, very much like Google Developer Groups, but it's for women and they support each other. So you might see Google Developer Groups and Women Tech Makers collaborating on an event. Um, women Tech Makers does a special event every year for International Women's Day. So I would keep an eye out for that campaign. So they do really good tech talks, really good soft skills training, really good information. I would encourage anyone to sign up for their mailing list because they have excellent tips and people you can meet in their email. Um, and so I, they're very strong. And if you're a student out there, I would recommend Google Developer Student Clubs. So these clubs are like GDG, but they're run by students for students. And if you'd like to be a Google Developer Student Club, you can look to the GDG for mentorship as well. So um, I know I myself like to support my local Google Developer Student Club. I'd like mm -hmm. to see more at other colleges. So if you're a university or community college student, I would encourage that as well. And so those are some very good communities out there. <laughs> so for students, so the, you know, when you're saying that Google will support them through mentorship, what does that really mean? Like what goodies do you get when you're starting your student club? The goodies vary from campaign to campaign, but one thing that if they contact me, I will help them run their events. I might help them with my experience finding venues, finding sponsors and that sort of thing. So I would say it's great to reach out to your local GDG if you're wanting to start a student club, because um, we've been if you find a experienced GDG leader, they will help you to set up your club or to run events. Um, they might know tips or tricks, they might be able to help market your events as well. So we had started by talking about how's the pandemic going for you? And I think we're going to end up cycling back to that. I mean, <laughs> this is the time in, in history that we keep cycling back to that. So events, are you starting to see GDG events that are um, people coming together in one room or is it all pretty much still virtual? 
I think at this point, it's mostly virtual, although I think in, uh, we're kind of respecting the ordinances of people's local area. So I am wanting to do an in-person event, although now, uh, just like I did with my classes, I would like to provide an online component to all of my events as well. And I'll be recording them and streaming them a lot more than I did in the past. Uh, but because my community college is allowing people in person, as soon as I can open the doors up to the community as well, I would like to host them in person. And I think it's very individual club to club because different parts of the world have different rules about the pandemic, depending on what's going on for them. I think there's definitely a lot of interest in getting some events back in person. <laughs> um, and virtual events have been a fun learning experience. There's some advantages with the virtual events as well. Uh, but I think a lot of us would love to also enjoy some in-person events. <laughs> You were talking about some of the uh, the benefits of uh, mentoring a, a student group. Does that also come into helping them find speakers or find things to talk about? I would definitely help them. And I don't know if that's exactly my responsibility, but I think that most Google developer group leaders would help another group or a student group in that capacity to find some speakers or resources. And um, Google developer student group also has a, a platform where they can look at the campaigns and they can ask Google as well. So Google provides some resources to them directly. Um, but if I if they reached out to me, I would definitely help them with whatever I would have to share speakers I know, resources I know of, and experience that I have. Let's see. So which TDG group are you currently affiliated with? Uh, I'm currently affiliated with Google Developer Group, and also I am in Women Tech Makers. I'm a Women Tech Makers ambassador, is what they call the leaders. And oh, yeah. I signed up for Google Student Clubs, but not. I'm I do that just so I can look over their campaigns and take a look in there. So <laughs> I'm a member because I'm oftentimes a student as well. <laughs> but, uh, and we'll we'll have links in the show notes to the the GDG also in your area and some other contacts information for them uh, uh, who are interested. And Google also has education right on its site. So you can go to the um, developers Google site and they have courses and I've provided a link to that as well. That's so yummy. That's exciting. Courses and certifications. Yeah, and code labs. So Google provides a lot of um, resources to both teach and learn. So you had said, I think this is really intriguing, this idea that maybe the events going forward will be hybrid events, like your classes are hybrid, the meetups will be hybrid. I think that's that's neat. That's I think that's something good coming out of these times. And you'd said that there are some good aspects to virtual events. So what do you perceive those as being? One thing is some people might disagree with me on the hybrid because one challenge of hybrid is you juggle a lot because it's hard to pay attention to your in-person people and your Zoom meeting at the same time. So one advice I would give is if you can delegate you know, maybe have one or two, one extra organizer and delegate some of the uh, remote to them. Um, so that is one thing that one challenge, one of the benefits to the virtual events themselves is they're open to everyone. So I've gotten people from all over the globe that will attend my event that normally only Northern Colorado would hear about. So that makes it really fun because I've had different people from different places and I've been able to join events 
events in other places. I know GDG Memphis put on a really cool meetup about C Sharp, and I was able to catch that. And you know, back back the way things were, uh, we didn't know about each other's events as easily. So it gives you this. Uh, there's something going on almost any time of day, which is really fun. <laughs> That's probably how you ended up in three Zoom meetings at once. <laughs> yes, yes. Conferences and meetings. And there's been such an explosion of online things that are now even more affordable. So many of them are free. And so uh, it's a candy store, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's very relatable. I think so, too. So I, I want to talk to you about the approach of learning Android. Uh, from a programmer's point of view. Great. And that always sounds strange because you'd say, well, if you're a programmer, why do you want to, I mean, what do you need to learn? It's like, well, that that's the whole thing is that I'm an iOS engineer. So I know loops and decisions and ifs and fours and all of that. And I can get my way through the Java or the Kotlin syntax. You know, I can convert funk to fun without any problem. But the question then becomes, what do you need to learn next? What are the, the from an iOS point of view is the frameworks, where do you start? Because there's just mm. com dot Google dot everything. And where, where do you start? So one uh, resource, they have a curriculum for developing Android apps with Kotlin for the um, developer who's not entirely new to code, the intermediate developer. I would start there because they'll cover Kotlin briefly, but then they'll start right in on the Android platform itself. And sometimes the most difficult milestone is getting it installed, um, getting it installed and getting it running on the emulators. And for that, I would actually recommend there's a lot of groups putting out something called Android Study Jam and or to find another Android developer like myself or someone out there who's done it before. If you get stuck on the setup, because I see a lot of people who will get alienated and fall away right off the bat, because um, if you try to do a tutorial that's uh, six months or a year old, sometimes there will Mm -hmm. be updates to the platform. And what I spend a lot of time doing is updating those older projects to run on the newest version of Android Studio. And I know exactly which files to look in and a lot of tricks to try. If you've never done Android platform before, that can certainly be a blockage where a lot of people at that point say, oh, well, I'll learn something else. (laughs) But a study jam or a mentor can be very helpful or stack overflow. (laughs) I know I've been uh, hit by the the configuration um, attack where I, I just couldn't get Android Studio configured correctly. And I was like, well, I've got other projects I need to work on. And- right. And then from there, you want to do, it's kind of like any other code curriculum where you'd want to build a simple app with maybe just a button that you can push to get kind of familiarized with the platform. Then from there, maybe build a list um, and learn what we call the recycler view pattern uh, with a list. And then you get even more complicated with like local storing data and then pulling data off the web. So mm-hmm. I would, so once you can do the recycler view and, and and everything, then move on to data storage and then web data. And while you're learning that, you will also be learning architecture on how to structure the apps. So once you start doing those more advanced things, the architecture will come right along with it. 
And um, they put out a advanced Android study jam this year. And the advanced study jam is really cool. It covers things like Jetpack Compose, Kotlin coroutines, um, using Hilt, which is dependency injection. Um, they have testing topics. So after you do the intermediate course, they have now modern Android development, Android study jam track um, that uses code labs to teach those really advanced topics that a lot of people are really interested in. And that's all just free, open, accessible to everyone and, and sponsored by Google? The study jams are run by GDG and, and other associated groups, Google Students Clubs and Women Tech Makers might run them as well. So they're generally free, yes. So it's kind of up to the organizer, but I'd say the vast majority of them are free. And you could look for one that's covering a topic or a lesson that you're interested in. And you can also find the tracks in the code labs um, on the Google site itself. So you can work on the lessons by yourself as well if you do a web search for um, learning Android in the uh, and we provided some links. So if you look at some of the links to Google, you'll see some of those tracks are very similar. And the nice thing is that they are kept up to date so that you're not going to be sliding too far with the iterational changes. Uh, it's one of the things that I like about Ray Wenderlich material uh, from our point of view is that we are constantly making sure those are up to date. And I'm really right. thrilled that the Google Gems are also being kept up to date because it's very it is can be very disconcerting to, to use a tutorial and find that the menus aren't where you expect to find them or the setting folders aren't where they're supposed to be. Well, and I think for people who are true beginners who are maybe beginners to computing, not beginners just to Android, you know, then you take away not, oh, yeah, the platform's changing all the time, tool sets changing. This is just a thing that happens in tech. But you think, oh, I as the learner have messed up, this isn't for me. And you can draw really broad, this isn't for me lessons. Not Android isn't for me, or Android Studio isn't for me. You can take away tech isn't for me. And that's the wrong takeaway, so. I would definitely not advise someone, maybe if you're new to code, you could learn the Android platform. Um, I would advise people to maybe get some basics, especially if you're still at the point where you're learning file management and those sort of things. It would be easier to come to the Android platform with at least those basics. I think you could be new to code, um, but being proficient in computers would definitely help. Although you can learn with any project. And I would say if you're in that boat where you just wanna learn Android really bad, and you don't know computers that well, then as Susanna pointed out, don't take it personally if it's difficult and reach out for help and support because I don't think a lot of people will judge you or blame you that things aren't going well. I think those of us who work with these tools also struggle with these tools and um, would be understanding and helpful <laughs> for the most part. I think this is why this this is why your first program is always hello world. So the computer is actually being friendly to you. Rather than saying, <laughs> you blew it, idiot. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to have the computer smile at you and say, okay. I, uh, I, I recall the, uh, the early programmer's manual for the Apple II actually said, this is your keyboard and there's nothing you can do to hurt the keyboard unless you type with a hammer. So that just reads as a challenge. <laughs> I, I was young then. I, I, I had to learn the words challenge accepted at that point. So, uh. But but back then it was just like, well, that's friendly. It makes me feel like I can't screw up too badly. 
Yeah, that's the thing is who who cares if it, you know, it can be frustrating because especially if you don't know a lot of terms to try and find out why something isn't working. So it would be good to start with a resource like Ray Winderlich because in my experience, um, Ray Winderlich has the most updated tutorials and that is why I use our books for my class because they are the most updated and my learners encounter the fewest problems because I've tried a few. So we use Ray Winderlich's textbooks or the, the Android Apprentice is what we use. And then they some of them sign up for the video courses, some of them don't. But um, the Android Apprentice is very well up to date. So they encounter the fewest problems starting there. All right, now I'll, I'll ask this and, and you know we'll, we'll go completely off track here. Besides Google resources, besides Ray Winderlich, what other resources are, are or do you do you like now JetBrains and IntelliJ put out some code classes so it looks like they cost money but there's a free trial and there are some free courses I need to add that link um, that they they provide some learning Kotlin stuff I found a really fun community let's see Android Heroes they're out there giving talks and it looks like that might be a neat place um, if you want to learn Udacity or it, Udacity has a video course which you can look at the lessons for free now if you want their certification that's not free but there's Mm. a whole ton of video lessons and you can go through all of them for free and they have a lot of different topics learning kotlin learning android they even have the basics of github Um, so you can get a lot of mileage out of that and if you want to get a certificate and have a mentor then you can pay but they let you watch the whole course without paying which is awesome Yeah, that's a great deal. So your students at the community college, what are they like? What motivates them to what, what can you say about common traits that, you know, bring them to study computing there? and especially the people who are going for the mobile certificates? I would say a lot of, I really love teaching at community college. Um, We have a a very diverse community. So you get all ages. I have from high school on up to seniors uh, all the time. And I have a lot of people who are doing career changes or they might have um, like the VA bill, I think you call it, or GI bill, excuse me. So I have high schoolers, uh, career change folks, adults, uh, regular college age students. I think what they all have in common is that they tend to want to have some freedom in their career choices. A lot of them might want to work at home or have a job where they kind of work by themselves, but in teams. And they want some freedom. They like to solve puzzles. I think they, a lot of them don't tend to thrive in the traditional education as much, or if they thrive there, they, that's not their preference. So a lot of them, you know, shy away from wanting to write a paper or some of the more following steps and memorization sort of things. They would like to avoid that. And that's what brings them into code. <laughs> And I think many of them would just like to have a higher paying career. I think that's one thing a lot of of us have in common is more freedom, a higher paying career, being in demand. And (laughs) I've always said that I went into code because it paid more than waiting tables. (laughs) So much for my theater degree. (laughs) I 
also waited a lot of tables. I've had a lot of odd jobs. I've even worked at a Greyhound kennel. I've worked at a cigar store, like a magazine store. I've had so many different jobs. (laughs) You you worked at what kind of kennel? A Greyhound's kennel out in Colorado. So they had racing Greyhounds. And I was one of the first people who cleaned and fed the pen. You know, we cleaned the pens and fed the Greyhounds. (laughs) It was the only job I could find at 15. (laughs) I don't know. That sounds kind of cool. I mean, messy and smelly, I'm sure, but but great. The dogs were really cool. Yeah, the dogs were cool, and I got to be nice to them. We took them out for exercise, and then we fed them, so it was pretty fun. We got to what was really fun was feeding the puppies. <laughs> oh, that sounds fantastic. Thinking about the students, and I so I'm asking all this because I've taught, and I also um, work very part time in in ed tech in. K through 12. Um, what makes the successful student who manages to go through and actually get the certificate and come away? I mean, I presume that if you actually manage to get the certificate, you also really own that knowledge. Like then you're comfortable um, starting a beginning level job in mobile development. I presume that's that's part of the promise of the certificate. So who's who manages that? And has that changed as things have become more virtual? Like are the successful students different than they were before? I think they're the same as they were before. It's the people who show up. And one thing with uh, programming, I do tell my students that it's not going to be a guaranteed job. So I do have some students that at the two-year level, they are able to get an entry-level code job. But I do tell them coming in that two years may or may not be enough. So they may need to augment their education and decide to then get a four-year computer science degree or possibly a boot camp or use resources like RAISE or all these resources that are out there to then take their skills to the next level. Um, But the ones who uh, really excel are the ones who just put a lot of time and effort into it and they do all the extra credit and they challenge themselves a lot and they come and ask questions when they need to. They participate a lot. Um, They do extra practice as well. So if an assignment, I tell my students, if an assignment was hard for you the first time and you barely get it done and turn it in, it might be a good indication to do it again. And people don't like to hear that. But if it was hard, then do it again until it's not hard. Or maybe turn to someone else in the class who's struggling and help them get through their assignment. And then you work with their different style of code. So I think part of what made me so comfortable in programming was tutoring as well as taking classes and working in the computer lab. So I also have an opportunity for them to use work-study funds to come be in a computer lab. And that might give them a chance to help other students and so i'd say if you want to get a job with just a two-year degree you really have to put your all into it 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 takes a lot more than just passing (laughs) i lucked out with work study working in the labs myself so i know how that goes um uh, just a quick question you had talked about the fact that sometimes two years isn't enough on the community college level is there the potential for internship or does that tend to be more of a four-year college uh, solution. Oh, good question. I don't personally have 
an internship and I wish I did. So I'm definitely open to finding opportunities like that. Uh, that'd be wonderful. I think we will grow mobile development in our area and I'm seeing it grow here and there. So I try to collaborate when I see the opportunity. We have internships sometimes mainly in our network security arena. And um, so internships can be hard to come by. I wish I could come by some and I would definitely offer them to my students. If I could clone myself, I would make a startup just so I could provide internships. <laughs> but um, so also volunteering. So one thing that I try to offer a bit is these dev fests and study jams and these sorts of things. Coding for the community can be a wonderful way to build your resume if you don't want to go to four-year college. And you help your students probably also understand how to work in open source and in as much as I would have time to. So uh, we don't always have enough class time. If I had more uh, unlimited time, I would like to show them how to use GitHub and how to work in open source. I do recommend resources. And on occasion, I've worked individually with students who want to take it a little further. And it's, to, it's kind of a, too much of an expectation to put over the whole class to make everybody do that. Oh, yeah. But I do inform them that I recommend it. I send out links. I will sit individually with a student and work with them on things if they're trying to build a portfolio. So I would love to build more of that into the curriculum. That's something I'm always revising. So that's something I'm always revising to add more of how can I integrate this with the real world and like bridge the gap, bridge the gap between education and employment. Yeah. So it's a big, it's a big gap to jump when you get that first developer position. Absolutely. Especially when you come out of education, because in education, there's at least when I came out of education, there was that perception that you don't really understand the software development life cycle because you haven't really had those kinds of production requirements you haven't had the the the, uh, the the calendar expectations uh to produce now i mean you come out of education you think sure i did i had an assignment that was due on thursday that's that's a, an expectation but but customers yeah yeah i mean it's different it is really different thinking back to you know getting started yeah, it's very different when you have the, the product life cycle. Yeah, and in, in education, I will say that is a challenge that it, I am still to this day, I've, I've been teaching 10 years, that I'd like to integrate more. It's very challenging to simulate a, a environment like that and then also keep the expectations where it's realistic for learners who don't have a lot of experience yet. So I'm always trying to look for ways that I can connect them with resources or encouraging them to go seek knowledge to actually meet real programmers. I think that's one of the best things you could do is connect with someone who's been in the field and talk to them about what it's like and what sort of things you need to learn. So part of why I run the GDG is so that if my students participate, they can come in contact with these real developers. And it's good for the real developers too, because they can come in contact with each other and different opportunities and recruiters can get involved. So I think it's really important that a student be proactive because there's only so much that the education program can provide in the time that we have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like when you were describing, well, what makes somebody successful that's not applicable just to people studying computing. That's like just what makes a, a learner successful is, you know, 
work hard. And when you're struggling, don't turn away from that. Go forwards into the struggle and struggle some more until you own that material. And it's just learning's hard work. It is. And, and accept that and, and move forward. And be very proactive. And seek help. Be, yeah, be very proactive and ask the question because not all, I try, one of my teaching philosophies is that it's hard to explain code. I do my best to explain it, but to bridge the gap if I can't explain it right is to be approachable. Mm-hmm. So I encourage them to please ask me any and every question. And I think a lot of times students feel like, oh, well, I'm a burden or I'm going to be annoying. I don't care. Go ahead. You know, I, I don't get annoyed. So I would encourage them, ask the question anyway. <laughs> Even if you feel like you've asked me too many questions, ask me a few more. <laughs> ask me the same question a couple times. <laughs> that is a very beautiful and unusual in too unusual in the tech world philosophy, though. I think there's a lot of gatekeeping, especially um, as somebody who is non-traditional in gender for a programmer as you are as well, Jen. And certainly at this age, while I'm still learning, just old, right? You know, and, but I'm going to keep learning and keep getting older, hopefully. And it's, so to make environments that are welcoming, so, so there's safe spaces to ask any question about tech and Mm -hmm. development, even if, you know, as you're saying it, it feels like a dumb question to make a space where it doesn't feel that way to ask it. That's fantastic. Your students are lucky. I think it's hard to do because even the nature of code, but it's my mission in life to um, get rid of gatekeeping because I, like yourself, I faced enough and I've, I've overcome it. And I, that was not, I, but I burst down the gates because I love right so much. So if someone w- wouldn't help me, I'd just move on to someone else or I'd just figure it out myself. And I, I changed colleges a couple of times, not because of gatekeeping, but, you know, it took a lot of, of effort on my part to finally get to where I was independently solving problems. And um, But I, I've, I really would love if gatekeeping didn't exist. So I love to keep a safe space. And, um, you know, by helping learners, you actually benefit yourself so there's no benefit to being a gatekeeper because they're you know learners are no threat to those of us who've established where we're at so um the, they, it will benefit you to help the other people because i'll tell you one thing that i've learned more from teaching people who are new to code i learned things about technology that i didn't know i'm challenged to seek the answer to questions that i never thought of and sometimes beginners will come up with the best idea i've ever heard in my life <laughs> so Sometimes my jaw just drops because I'm like all these years and I've never seen that or I've never heard of that. Um, So, you know, don't underestimate someone just because they don't have all the knowledge yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's very exciting. I think this makes a fantastic transition as we talk about sharing the knowledge and and asking the questions and, and, and availing yourself is that. You went through that in a in a completely new way by being one of the co-hosts on the series. Um, and and Susanna has just been wildfire about ripping out questions and and, and preparing and the like. If you were to, to say one thing about how co-hosting was different from when you started the season to when you finished out the season, what were some of the experiential changes you went through there? 
Wow. When I started, I, I knew nothing about um, podcast hosting. So, and I think I had a different expectation of how much experience it takes. So I think I had an idea that I was a really advanced programmer because I've been doing this for so long. And then as I meet all the people in the sphere, I realized, wow, you know, there's so much left to learn. And um, by the end of it, I started to feel more comfortable about where I was at and where I was going and like accepting of this is what I know and there's too much to know everything. So, you know, let experts mm -hmm. be the experts and, you know, just to do what you can do. And uh, Drew, you taught me a lot of great techniques of asking questions that I didn't have to go learn everything about the topic and be the expert myself, but I could ask questions to dig a little deeper. I think that skill has helped me in life everywhere. <laughs> So it's helped me wing it through lots of um, circumstances. <laughs> it's it's interesting because we are like a classroom, but without necessarily the contact from the students. So we are prepping the material. We're hoping that we're setting up a, a series of questions and answers that will help. But, you know, there there isn't quite the feedback or necessarily the questions to come back in. Although listeners always can email us, right? So if there Absolutely. are questions, we're real people here. So we would love to hear from folks. And don't forget the email is podcast at raywenderlich.com. If you email us, we will respond. That's another thing I encourage people to do. <laughs> yeah, if it's really good. But yeah, people don't reach out nearly enough. And I'll tell you, as being a speaker and everything, I don't feel that I'm very intimidated. But one thing I learned is that people, even with more knowledge and experience, because I'm out there talking, will feel intimidated of me. And I would say, mm. don't hesitate at all to talk to the speaker, because the speaker, if you can tell them, hey, you know, I really enjoyed your talk. I have a question about this, or I really like this part of your talk. Um, I don't think people approach podcast hosts and speakers nearly as often as they think, uh, you know, other people do. So, you know, reach out, talk to the speaker. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that that comes down to the, the second you become a speaker or a host, there's this street cred concept that, that you are a foremost expert and thus unapproachable. The same with a teacher and the like. And I, and I, I really mm. wish there was an, an equalization process so that people didn't feel that, that sense of intimidation. Let me take you back. What was it like considering auditioning for the show? The audition was really probably one of the easier parts because I just, I am an impulsive person. We'll put it that way. So <laughs> I saw when I got started at Ray Winderlich, I was having so much fun and I took on, you know, he emails out opportunities. So every time I saw an email, I'm like, I'm going to apply for that. I'm going to apply for that. So when I saw the podcast, because I stand around and chat a lot with my students and um, I was like, I'm a talkaholic this will be great so the the addition was really fun and easy for me and I just recorded it up I think I maybe did 
one or two tries. <laughs> and um, then I fired it off. And that's the moment. This is just my personality. That's the moment when I was like, should I have really done that? And then I thought, <laughs> well, you know, they probably get so many applications. You know, maybe I'll get my foot in the door for a later season. I, it, I, I didn't realize that I would get the spot right off the bat. So I was like um, really excited when you um, reached back. But like many things that I've signed myself up for, it was a bigger challenge than I foresaw going in. <laughs> but that's everything I do. So was book writing. So was article writing. So was editing. Everything I, so was programming. Everything I've ever done in my life, I've kind of just jumped on the boat and then realized, oh my gosh, I'm on the boat. <laughs> you know, it's a bigger challenge than I thought. So I'm a real leap before you look sort of person sometimes. We wish we had more time to fit in everything in the entire interview, but if you want to see everything we said, you can watch the whole episode on YouTube in just a few weeks. So Jennifer, I really want to thank you for, for making time and coming back onto the show. It was an absolute pleasure to have you, and it was great getting uh, to hear a little bit of what your experience was as a co-host and talking about everything uh, involved with teaching at, uh, at Ames, it's just great to hear how things progress. And as you said, it's almost time for another article. So we look forward to seeing whatever else is coming up next. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. So fun to talk to you. So fun to meet you. It's fun to meet you too, Susanna. And it's always my pleasure. So call me anytime. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. <laughs> You can find Jen online through Twitter at Jen.Codes, at J-E-N-N-D-O-T-C-O-D-E-S. Susanna is Suz Gupta, that's S-U-Z-G-U-P-T-A. As always, I'm Podcast Drew, that's D-R-U. In two weeks, we're going to have Jay Strawn come back on the show. Uh, Jay was one of our other co-hosts, and we're looking forward to hearing how things have been going for Jay. Jay also was a book writer, as well as working in one of the... Uh, boot camps so that'll be coming back up in two weeks but that's going to wrap things up for my guest jen bailey and for co-host susanna sky Gupta, i am drew freeman we send things back to the emerald castle ray back to you and that's a wrap thanks again everybody for listening to the raywenderlick.com podcast we hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to leave a rating on itunes see you next time <laughs>